Hello, and welcome to the Project Good podcast. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Hilton. Project Good is a social impact podcast interviewing experts and advocates about the pressing problems that we face globally and hearing how they suggest we move forward in the future. The Project Good podcast is brought to you by Project Good Work. The goal of this podcast is to inspire people and organizations to develop a mindset that can move others to positive action regarding the complex social issues facing people and the planet. For March, we're focusing on human trafficking. According to the International Labor Organization, modern slavery occurs in every region of the world and is most prevalent in Africa, followed by Asia and Europe. Around the world, there are an estimated 49.6 million victims trapped in modern-day slavery, including 27.6 million in forced labor and 22 million in forced marriage. 75% are age 18 or older, while the number of trafficked children under the age of 18 is estimated at 25%. Out of 71% of the trafficked victims around the world, women and girls make up that majority, and 29% are men and boys. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing author, artist, survivor, and speaker, Amanda Blackwood. Ms. Blackwood is the author of the book, Custom Justice, her story about how she became a survivor of human trafficking. After she made it out of human trafficking, she has become an advocate for the victims, and she is sharing her story as a speaker and writer and artist. Let's get into the interview. Seven-time published author Amanda Blackwood has survived the harrowing experience of human trafficking and is now an advocate for those going through the same experience. Through her books and speaking engagements, she educates her audience on the misconceptions of human trafficking and gives hopes to survivors. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the show today. Yes, thank you so much. So first of all, uh, thank you for being on on our show and sharing your story with us today. And I hope this gives people insight into human trafficking, um, the crisis, and of course, anyone who has experienced this problem, uh, direct hope. Um, So I guess to get started, um, to just uh, set the uh, story up for the audience, can you tell us, uh, I guess, your your background and, and what happened to you? Uh, Sure. So uh, most survivors of human trafficking, most victims of human trafficking are no stranger to abuse before ever being trafficked. Something along the lines of 85% of all victims have experienced abuse in their own household growing up. Um, I was abused myself. I was uh, mentally and emotionally abused by my mother, physically abused by my father, and sexually abused by my brother. This all started when I was about four years old. So I had this long history of Uh, being predisposed to abuse and understanding at a very young age and believing that abuse went hand in hand with love. So when a child grows up in that kind of environment, we learn that you can't have one without the other. It cannot exist without existing together. Um, That's kind of what left me predisposed to ending up in that world of being trafficked. Um, Somehow I was always able to keep my head above water and I've always had this really optimistic outlook even during the darkest times of my life and I've been really, really blessed in that way. I'm I'm lucky to be alive. Less than 2% of all victims actually survive according to FBI statistics and that's part of why I started writing my story. It's because I have a gift for writing and if it's going to exist in my life, it needs to have a positive purpose too. 
Yes. Um, I, I've noticed, you know, you have uh, uh, seven books and I think you're uh, you're continuing to write. Um, I uh, looked at um, uh, a couple of different of your uh, books, just gave a preview. So, yes, you uh, definitely have a hand on writing. Um, and so I guess uh, uh, this is just an aside. Um, I guess how did you, I guess, find out that you were a talented writer? I actually have, I've had a couple of more since then. I actually have 11 books to my name now. Um, so it's a never ending mm -hmm. thing. I started out very young wanting to be a writer and being very discouraged in my household. My mother said, you'll never make it as a writer, but you should try art. So I did try art for a while and I became a professional artist for a while and I burned out on it very quickly. That wasn't my passion. I, I was decent at it, decent enough to be able to sell it, but that's not where my heart wanted me to go. That wasn't my purpose in life. So I continued writing, and as early as the sixth grade, I had my first bit of encouragement. I had a teacher who uh, he wrote a half a sentence on the board followed by the ellipses, and we were supposed to finish it off with a full paragraph. We were had 20 minutes to do this assignment. And the sentence was, I jumped into my time machine and suddenly dot, dot, dot. I went a little beyond the one paragraph. And at the end of 20 minutes, I had five pages. Wow. And I did not <laughs> want to turn in my assignment because I wasn't done yet. And the teacher told me, Mr. Lee, I'll never forget this man. Uh, he told me, he says, why don't you go ahead and turn it in? And when I'm done grading it, I'll give it back to you and you can continue writing. Okay. All right. That's a good deal. He says, I'll grade yours first so that you can keep working on it. So he was true to his word. And when he gave it back to me, it had red marks in the margin that said, when you're finished writing this story, please turn it in for extra credit. I want to know what happens. Um, mm. When I finished it, it was 24 pages. And it was about a, uh, a scientist who jumped into a time machine and ended up back in the dinosaur days and accidentally brought home a dinosaur egg. And he changed <laughs> the course of history because of it. I mean, this is coming from a mind of a sixth grader. I was <laughs> well, but that's pretty, but that's, you know, but that's pretty deep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was so much fun. And he told me, he says, you've got a real gift for writing and I hope you continue doing it. And secretly I did. I mm -hmm. did not publish my first book until 2018. Uh, so all these other books, this 11 books that I have now has all been since 2018. Wow. Okay. Um, so yeah, so just as a, a, a natural gift and talent, because uh, definitely, um, you know, <laughs> as uh, for any sixth grader, they'd be just happy to be like, I'm done. I did the assignment. Let's go out <laughs> and uh, hang out or like, you know, let me relax. <laughs> right. Is it recess right. time yet? I... <laughs> yes, exactly. Because they're, they're just in that in between like kid to teenager age. And you're like, I don't want to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been so. perfectly happy spending all of my recesses sitting in a classroom writing stories yes <laughs> um so you know for your 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 story that you um you know that you uh, you tell the kind of the the background of how you got into this situation um, in in your book. I guess let's start at the beginning. Let's start at the the story. How did how did you how did you go at, at thirty one and you know go over to uh, Scotland and you know all of this happened? So I guess tell us from uh, you know how you met this person and uh, um, or anything that you think they'll lead up to it that uh, help people a little bit um, understand the story a little bit more. Okay. 
So the, I was trafficked three different times in my life. The first one, I was 18, and I was dating a man who was more than twice my age, and he basically loaned me out to a friend of his for a birthday weekend in Las Vegas. So he traveled from Arizona to Las Vegas, and once there, I was put into a hotel room and told that I was not allowed to leave the hotel room, or there would be consequences. And I couldn't just turn around and walk out of the hotel room and go find police because I didn't have any identification. I had no driver's license. Um, All of my stuff, my belongings were all back in Arizona. So I had to put up with what it was that I was going to go through just in order to get back to where I had been get my things and get out. And that's exactly what I did. So the first time it was, this is wrong. This is abusive. I did not realize it was trafficking. Um, when I got back, uh, I split, took off and this man chased me and followed me halfway across the country. I moved to Arkansas, married another man, um, and, uh, who was also considerably older than I was. And this goes into a lot of psychology of not having a good relationship with my father, as a lot of people will be aware. Um, When I married this man who was, again, twice my age, the first man who had trafficked me called me on my wedding day to congratulate me and to tell me he was on his way to get me. It was very scary. So Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time trying to run away and try to escape from really bad situations and getting married and getting divorced and leaving and moving. I've moved 43 times in my life. I'm only 42 years old. Mm. (laughs) Wow. Wow. (laughs) So the second time after I was married and I was um, being tracked by this first trafficker, I split again. I went from Arkansas to Florida after sustaining a knee injury on a horse farm. When I got down to Florida, I was planning originally to stay with my grandmother, my dad's mom. She was going to take me in. I was going to stay there while I got knee surgery in order to correct the damage that had been done. When I got to the Daytona Beach bus station, um, and all this is outlined in one of my books. It's called Detailed Pieces of a Shattered Dream. Uh, But this... Um, my grandmother basically had her husband, my step-grandfather, uh, answer the phone and tell me that they were not coming to get me and I was on my own. I didn't know for quite a while that the reason this happened was because my parents had called them and said, if you take her in, we'll never speak to you again. She confessed this to me years later. We mm. never had a good relationship again. Um she passed away in 2017 and I was mad at myself for a little while for not crying. And I didn't understand why I wasn't upset or angry. And I realized that apparently I was still holding on to a little bit of anger at her for what had happened. Uh, and I've, I've since learned to let it go, but I didn't realize until she died that that still existed. Um, so I got away from there and I tried to figure out my own life and try to get on my feet. I ended up back with my husband. We had a son together before we got divorced. Um, and then I moved out to California. And once in California, my ex-husband moved with my son, moved illegally, uh, basically parental alienation, parental kidnapping. And after my son was nine years old, I never saw him again. Um, And Mm. I will circle around back to this in the year of 2020. There were some, some things that, that happened that kind of brings my son back into the story. So I was floating around in California, trying to figure out who I was and figure out how to survive in life. And I started internet dating 
I was on Plenty of Fish. There was a website back then called Hot or Not. And I met this man in Scotland uh, through Hot or Not. And we continued our conversation outside of that website in emails back and forth for seven years back and forth. We'd known each other for seven long years. I watched his child grow up in photos and we always remained really close. There were periods of time where we did not speak uh, because life got in the way. I'd end up in a relationship or he would. Um, and then after seven years, when we finally said, you know what, this is, this is ridiculous. We've known each other all these years. I love you. You love me. Let's make something happen. He came over to visit me in California. I went to Scotland to visit him and we thought that we well, I believed that we both thought we were falling more in love. I got back to California. He asked me to get a fiance visa and to marry him and to move to Scotland. So I sold my car. I gave up my career where I had just gotten $11,000 a year raise. I was super proud of as from my high school dropout with no college education. I was finally doing really well for myself and I left everything behind friends, family, everything. I didn't really have much family out there except for one uncle that I absolutely adored, but I gave that up too. I gave up that relationship to go and be with this person. After seven years of him building up that level of trust and him pretending to be somebody else in emails and putting on his mask for his four or five days when he was visiting me or the week when I was visiting him, he was always this really amazing good, upstanding, kind, gentle person who happened to be a police officer. I figured I was Mm, safe with this mm, guy. mm -hmm, And as soon as I got over there, after seven years of building up that trust, it took him seven days to start trafficking me. Seven Mm, days. Seven days. Wow. Yeah. He took my passport, my uh, debit card, my driver's license, and all that personal identification stuff. Almost as soon as I got there, it was, we had just left the airport and we were on our way to his home. It was less than two hours I was on the ground. And he asked me for those things so that he could put them in the safe when we got to his house, uh, just for safekeeping. And I Mm. bought into it. I believed in him. I trusted him. Yes, understandable. And you would think that you could trust somebody who is actually a police officer. <laughs> right. Goodness right. Yes. Oh, oh, I, you know, that's just, uh, it just, it, it breaks my heart. <laughs> and so, oh my gosh. Yeah. You, you know, you just, you, yeah, you, you hope that you can, you, you know, you can trust these people, especially people who have authority. Um. So, you know, that kind of leads me to, you know, a lot of people don't realize, as you were mentioning, that sometimes they are in these situations that are human trafficking. So what is human trafficking? So according to the Department of Homeland Security, it is defined as the use of force, fraud or or coercion to obtain um, labor or sex services in exchange for money. 
Yes. And so in, in this, I think a lot of people, sometimes they, they, um, they don't understand uh, the difference sometimes because um, especially I would say probably here in America, maybe not um, abroad so much, um, but a lot of people, they, the, the image that they instantly think of when they think of human trafficking, they think of, you know, uh, either third world countries um, or they think of, you know, um, I'm in California. A lot of people think of Mexico when you hear about human trafficking. And so they're like, well, what's the difference between that and, uh, you know, smuggling uh, migrants? And, um, you know, uh, that's what a lot of people, that's the image. I'm sure, you know, uh, definitely in the time that you've talked to people, that's the instance they think they, they probably, (laughs) they they probably ask you, you know, are you from a foreign country or something like that originally? Right. Right. Um, And then when they do learn (laughs) my story, they believe that I was trafficked because I was taken to Scotland. I wasn't taken there. I went by choice. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. So, and there's, there's, there's a massive difference. I mean, one of the, the most blatant differences that was recently pointed out to me is one is by choice and one is not. So somebody who's being trafficked is forced, frauded or coerced into doing labor acts or doing sex acts. And the people who are in control of them are the one receiving the funds. Whereas somebody who's being smuggled, human smuggling, those people are by choice asking most of the time to be smuggled from one country to another so that they can try to have a different life. It's completely different. Yes. And so one of the things, you know, that... um, as I started uh, diving deeper into um, how human trafficking works here in the U.S., because I think a lot of people are naive. They think, oh, this is America. That kind of stuff doesn't happen here. But the U.S. actually, a lot of there's a lot going on. And the U.S. is actually uh, is um I would think maybe, um, you know, I'm not an expert, of course, of, about human trafficking, but I think the U.S. is even maybe trickier because the fact that people have this notion that this can't happen here. Right. Um, And so people get away with it. um, I think a lot easier here than perhaps in a, another country where people are like, of course it's happening there. (laughs) But we also have a sue happy Mm -hmm. culture. And when you start running into somebody is going to sue you because you tried to do CPR because they had a do not resuscitate paper in their back pocket and you didn't look at it first. People are afraid to speak up. People are afraid to say, hey, I think my neighbor's child is being trafficked or, hey, I think my neighbor's child is being abused. They don't want to speak up because they don't want to get involved. Don't get me involved. I'm turning a blind eye to this. That's not my family, not my problem. Yes, but, you know, for the the amount of people, it's, you know, almost 50 million people plus, you know, that's just right. an older statistic from 2021. So uh, especially during the pandemic, um, people were put in much more vulnerable situations than ever because you couldn't go anywhere right. um, and everything was shut down. So who knows what the, you know, the number is actually right now. And that's the thing I think a lot of people don't realize is that, um, the numbers that we have are are probably lowballing the reality of the situation, right? Because those are only known situations, and I I would venture to guess that most of them are not known. Yes, and so one of the things, of course, um, is there's uh, this is kind of a, a two part question here, is that uh, of course people want to know who are these people who traffic, and then how are people selected? Um, I don't know if you have any insight into that. 
I do have a little bit. Um, speaking with FBI agents out here, the youngest person who was rescued from trafficking in recent years was as young as three months old. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the oldest, if you think that's shocking, the oldest person to be rescued from human trafficking here in the U here in Colorado in the last few years was in her seventies. Mm. So when it comes to who could possibly be trafficked, absolutely anybody. I was trafficked at 18, 19, and 31, and people stare at me with their jaws hanging open when I tell them I was 31 years old when I was trafficked. But that's not unusual. Only one quarter of all victims, by estimates, are under the age of 18. So the majority of victims are over the age of 18. Everybody thinks only about the children. They think it can only happen to children, but that's not the case at all. Yes. And yeah. And, you know, and the opening statistic is uh, 71% or more. Um, right. So people, yeah, people just don't, uh, you know, that's um, the thing that people, it's hard to believe because people start thinking, well, you know, you're an adult, can't you like uh, uh, fight back? So how, I guess, how do people... I guess you, you explain, obviously, how you got into this situation. Uh, yours, um, I guess I'll just summarize it. It was, uh, you know, uh, were people who you thought you could trust. And that's how it how it started for you. Um, so what would you say are the, uh, now that you've talked to um, other people who are survivors, what would you say is the most um, common thing that happens for them to start to get into the situation? Uh, the early abuse um, you know, I mentioned earlier something about the, the childhood abuse, and so many of us have gone through that. I have a very dear friend who was trafficked at an extremely, extremely young age, um, earlier than the average statistics, which are between the ages 12 and 14 for girls, 10 to 12 for boys. Um, those are the average. Uh, her story is just absolutely heartbreaking, and it started with step-parents. Um, I've got a lot of other friends who grew up in households where they felt rejected by their families. And as such, they started looking for that acceptance and that love wherever they could get it. Uh, and a lot of times where they find it is with boyfriends who are, who turn out to be abusive people. And these abusive people then later on turn into traffickers, uh, in a lot of cases in order to try and make money. They think they can get away with it and they think that this person will do anything for them. And as long as they are frauded into it, they absolutely will. Yes. And, you know, uh, speaking of the, the money component, a lot of people, I think, um, you know, they just think of this as, um, I guess they just think of uh, maybe evil people that have, you know, psychological problems. It's, it's you know, a, a few people out there. That's what most people are thinking, but they don't understand there's a whole um, industry and it's, uh, you know, billions and billions of dollars um, that people are making off of um, uh, human trafficking. And, um, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, what we have the images of, I'll just say, like Hollywood movies, uh, right. just because, uh, just because, you know, uh, not everybody obviously has a, a firsthand experience. But when we see on uh, movies, that's what we, that's what we think. It's, you know, these, these psychopaths <laughs> that take yeah. on this, but, um, you know, but not necessarily, right. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and, 
just to talk about a little bit of, about the different forms of human trafficking, because I think people only think about, um, you know, you, at least even me, you know, you just think about, oh, you know, somebody is either going to force you then to become like, okay, you're going to work to death or um, sex trafficking, but there are other, um, other um, types. There are. Those are the two major ones. And here in the U.S., we don't have a huge issue with uh, organ trafficking, but it does happen uh, little bits here, but mostly in other countries where people are um, stolen, they're kidnapped, they are um, parents who do this to their own children, where they will steal their own child's kidney um, or ovaries from a young woman in order to sell them on the black market for somebody else who needs an organ transplant or wants to have a child. These are terrible, horrible things that are happening to people. And in most cases for organ trafficking, most of the time the the person doesn't survive depending on what it is that they're taking from them. If they take a liver, you've only got one of those. You're not Mm going to pull through. And it's absolutely terrible. Um, but thankfully, we have pretty strict uh, medical regulations here in the U.S., and they do work really hard to crack down on the um, hidden uh, hidden medical practices. So we don't see a lot of that here. I'm super grateful. I, I can't even imagine what that life must be like. Yes. I, you know, I screamed just for a scrape, so I couldn't even imagine. <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine like, you know, once again, uh, you know, the, uh, you see the, you, you sometimes, um, it's been a while. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I now, uh, you know, um, uh, filter or tune my news because uh, every week there's some horrible thing happening. Um, but you know, um, uh, it used to be that you would see, like, hear about, like, you know, in Asia, somebody had, you know, uh, taken someone's liver or sliced them. And, you know, you might see uh, somebody uh, like in a Hollywood thing that they're in a, a tub. So it's just I, I just can't imagine. Um, and in those cases, I, I just can't imagine the perpetrator. Like you have to be like um, mm, <laughs> kind of crazy for slicing and dicing um, right. to, to, to take, uh, you know, organs out. Um, and another thing that people, you know, don't think of, I guess, when it comes to human trafficking, and this happens a lot, I would say probably not so much in the U.S., um, but in a lot of third world countries are the, the for, forced, forced uh, marriage uh, forced marriage um, yeah. uh, that happens um, in some Asian countries, some African countries, and uh, children are married off, um, sometimes as young as uh, eight or uh, I don't know. They're probably sometimes even five years old um, right. and they're um, married off and uh, get stuck in these situations. And um, and then uh, additionally, um, there's the uh, the militant uh, child soldiers. Um, you see this sometimes in African nations where children are forced to uh, take up the role of soldiers and fight, um, even though they can, you know, uh, barely do things on their own yet. Um, they're on the role of, uh, you know, having having to fight. So this problem, when we think of human trafficking, you know, um, and the reason I'm bringing up these different points is that I want people to open their minds that human trafficking is a lot more widespread and covers a lot more areas than people think of um, because everybody gets narrowed down into forced labor or sex trafficking. Right. And there's a couple of others too. So, I mean, there's always the cyber sex trafficking, which is one of the things that happened to me uh, where somebody recorded where I was being violated and then they made money off of it by putting it up online. 
Um, but one of the biggest one, there's a huge consumption here in the U.S. of pornography, and there's a, a big connection of pornography to human trafficking, too. Uh, there's a high number of pro- uh, pornography producers who coerce people into performing, and then they profit off of that abuse. And this is part of the uh, fraud part of the forced fraud or coercion. They fraud these people into it because they can, they tell them you're going to be a famous actress or actor. Um, we're going to pay you $20,000 for 30 minutes of work. Then they don't pay them. They, they lie to them. If they do pay them, it's maybe 40, 50 bucks for their time. Well, you didn't do as good as we'd hoped you would. And there's a huge connection there. And again, my my rape videos were put up on pornography websites, and my former trafficker still profits off of this today. It's part of why I wrote my book was because he was making me famous already. And if people were going to find me, if they were going to find my social media, they might as well also find the truth. Yes. And, you know, and I will say you're one of a kind because most, uh, you know, survivors or victims of human trafficking do not have the, you know... Um, I guess, lack of better words, cojones to fight back. (laughs) (laughs) I was tired of hiding. I was tired of moving. I'm not doing it anymore. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, and I think it's a, and it's a powerful testament. um, And I'm sure you find this in your speaking engagements and talking to other people who have had this experience of, you know, it's an, an, an empowering way to tell people that, no, this is not right. And, you know, you will be, if you are, you know, a perpetrator found out or, uh, you know, um, or, you know, the, the victims do have power. Um, you know, one of the things I think that, uh, as I was reading and, um, that people encounter is like, how do you, after, I guess, such experiences, how do you then, um, you know, uh, bring yourself back into, uh, I guess, quote unquote, normal society, you know, and, and you, of course, are, you know, have an amazing story. So after such an experience, I would assume there's a lot of, uh, you know, trauma. So how do you then, um, you know, have the, the drive to then, you know, bring yourself to where you have brought yourself? This was no easy journey. Even growing up uh, with the abuse that I was suffering, I developed a phobia of going into places that I had never been into before. If I was by myself, I was getting to where I was terrified of humanity in general. After living through everything that I'd been through, after coming back from Scotland, it was no different. I went to work for a friend of mine. I lived with a friend of mine. I couldn't do anything or go anywhere on my own for a little while. After... I think it was three or four months, I found out that the friend that I was living with, she discovered what had happened to me and she couldn't understand how somebody could go through something like that without it being a choice. So the way that her brain made sense of it was she started telling people that I Mm. was a high priced call girl. Mm. That's horrible. It was the deepest form of betrayal. And when that happened, I had no choice but to get out of there and go do things on my own. I couldn't rely on her anymore. I couldn't trust her. I couldn't depend on her. She had uh, violated me. She had violated my trust and I was done. I ended up finding my own little one bedroom apartment and terrified to walk into the place the first time I was there, but I did it anyway because out of necessity I had to. I started 
pushing myself to do more and more things that I'd never done before and go places that I'd never been to before. I flew to Michigan to go visit friends of mine. I had never been to Michigan. I'd never been to their home, but that wasn't as tough because I was with people that I knew and I could trust. Uh, but on that flight, I met a flight attendant who told me, you know, I think you would probably be pretty good at this job. I told her, I said, I've got a job. Thank you. But I'm not really interested right now. When I got back from that trip, I had a fight with my boss (laughs) (laughs) and Mm -hmm. I told him I'm going home for the day. And he said, yes, you are with pay. Bye. (laughs) He paid (laughs) me to go home. And we still have a great relationship. I'm still friends with this guy to this day. But I went home that day and I filled out that flight attendant job application. And the next thing I knew, I had aced the interviews and they hired me and talk about taking myself out of that comfort zone. I was suddenly traveling all over the country, going places I'd never been before with people I didn't know. And I had cities to explore and my deep seated drive of wanting to explore pulled me back into who I who I probably would have been if none of this, the abuse and the trafficking and all that stuff had ever happened. I found myself getting back to the root of who I am inside and figuring out who I am. I started reading a lot of psychology books and trying to dig into why I was reacting certain ways to different things that would happen or different things that was that were said or things I would see on TV. Where are these bad dreams coming from? How do I fight back against this? And doing that hard work set me up to later on Uh, seek help from an anti-trafficking group here in Colorado. And they helped me to find a good therapist who genuinely helped me um, in ways that I didn't know I still needed. And if it hadn't been for her, I would not be happily married. I wouldn't have written custom justice. I wouldn't be an artist. I would not be who I am right now. If it hadn't been for doing all that hard work and for finding the right therapist and, and getting the help I needed. Wow. Yeah. Most people are, you know, just even and in, in, in not going through a crisis situation aren't willing to do that for themselves. Um, so, you know, I, I commend you that you have the inner um, strength um, and I would say inner insight um, to to know that, uh, you know, your 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 true self lied deeper within you. Um the other thing that you brought up, and this is something that I will say goes across the board, and the thing that people will continue to say is that, you know, um, didn't this person bring it on themselves or make that choice? And, you know, um, that is something I see happen time and time again. Um, and so I guess, can you speak to that on how that it isn't uh, somebody's choice to do this. Um, it's kind of like, uh, I guess you would say in, in case of rape victims, how people then, uh, uh, blame the victim because the victim was wearing, you know, six inch heels or a short skirt. They've said, well, they were, you know, uh, they put themselves in that situation. Um, can you speak to that? Because that is the thing I think that, um, uh, that insensitivity that goes across the board um, in all in all societies. Well, I actually had a very in-depth conversation about this. Um, I want to say it was probably about two years ago now, where when I, I started openly speaking about being a survivor of human trafficking, somebody actually got really angry at me and said, I, I don't believe this ever happened to you. Why didn't you just run away? Um. 
I was the, the first time I was ever trafficked, I was 19. I was already familiar what it meant to be molested. And most, I touched on this earlier, most victims of human trafficking are. It's rarely ever new information uh, in their brains, in their bodies. This is what they believe is a normal thing. Most kids between 12 and 14 years old when they're trafficked, um, but I was legally considered an adult. I was married to someone the second time I was trafficked. I was trying to escape physical abuse from him when I got trafficked that second time. This is nothing that's been strange, but it's not about abuse or molestation by a disgusting uncle or a brother. Um, this is why don't people just run away? Children have a much harder time being able to run away. The truth is that I didn't know that I was being trafficked. Most kids, of course, wouldn't know they were being trafficked either. But the way that it is looked at, as you touched on in movies and in media, it didn't look like how they were saying it should look like. I just thought it was abuse. And I just thought this abuse went hand in hand with being loved because that was my life. That was all I'd ever known. By the first time I realized what was going on, I'd already been threatened with my life at knife point and I was uh, violently raped. This was, this was how I was living my life. Once I realized what was going on, I would have given anything to be able to run away. But I was locked in a small room the second time I was trafficked with a combination lock on the outside of the door. And I couldn't unlock that door even if I could see the lock. You know, I had no idea what to do. I have physical scars on my hand 20 years later from my trying to escape I'm trying to get out. Uh, it didn't work very well for me, but I did eventually get out, thankfully. Uh, and then we touched on it already. I, I was trafficked again later on. The I'll kill your family threats had no bearing on me because I didn't really have any family. But that happens a lot to people. My immediate, life, immediate family when I was in Scotland was thousands of miles away. Even if we had any kind of relationship, that would have meant nothing to me. But to most other victims, this is a very viable threat. This is them saying, if you don't do what I tell you to do, then I'm going to get your eight-year-old sister and make her do it instead. Most kids would do anything to prevent that kind of torture from happening to their own kid sister. Now, it's Nobody knew where I was, though. When I was trafficked, nobody cared. Nobody knew. I wasn't about to die or be sold or passed around like a child's toy anymore. I was going to fight back. And I did. I fought back hard. So when I did finally manage to get free, I did run. I ran like my life depended on it because, frankly, it did. I ran straight to a police officer when I got out of my situation in Florida, and she didn't believe me. And then I ran to a police officer in Scotland thinking that's where I was going to be safe for the rest of my life, and he did the same thing to me. I ran to get my things. I ran to find a park. I ran to sleep on a park bench. I ran to the arms of men that I barely knew. I ran to other states. I ran from one home to another to another. I ran back to my ex-husband at one point. I ran to having babies and I didn't stop running. And I lived a really harsh life, all the ways on the run from something, but mostly on the run from myself and my own internal shame and my own 
internal blame. I blamed myself for everything. And one day I just got tired of running. So instead I sat down completely exhausted and hungry for something new. And I picked up my pen and I wrote my story. That was the day that I stopped running was when I wrote my first book because I knew that I had found a platform to be able to stand on my own two feet and to be able to speak about what had happened to me and maybe reach out to somebody else to let them know that they're not alone. So when somebody asks, why don't you just run? It's not always that easy, but once you do finally get a chance to run, sometimes you don't know when to stop. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, you know, that, that leads me to the question then that a lot of people, you know, they, they don't understand because you brought up the the fact that, um, you know, a lot of times people didn't believe you. And we already covered a little bit on why people don't want to believe that because they don't want to, you know, deal with the situation. But what are some signs that, um, you know, uh, for people who, uh, perhaps are more caring or want to be alert, uh, what are the signs that they should look for that somebody is experiencing, uh, possibly experiencing human trafficking? Um, When it comes to things like child labor, like you checked on earlier, most kids between the ages of five and 17 should be attending school. If they're not attending school um, and there's not a good valid reason for it, say if they're extremely special needs or if they're being homeschooled, this can be a really good warning sign that this kid is experiencing something that they shouldn't. Abuse, human trafficking, uh, labor trafficking. For myself, I was a fairly normal kid. And when the abuse started, I went from being this outgoing, energetic, bubbly child to being completely closed off emotionally. And my personality changed almost overnight. And I can recognize that looking looking back on myself. Uh, but I know a lot of people have a difficult time recognizing that in themselves. But it is something that most people should be able to recognize if this is somebody that you know, somebody that you talk to, or you see around your neighborhood, if they have a regular routine, pay attention, uh, make sure, watch for bruises, watch for any kind of controlling person walking with them. If they're constantly uh, berating them or pointing at where they should go or kind of controlling their motions or what the way they speak. They're not allowed to be alone. These are all really good signs to watch for that this, this person might need help. And it's going to be a lot of the same signs that you would look for for domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And so how can, um, if people notice these uh, signs, um, how can everyday people help, uh, help victims or survivors? There are anti-trafficking groups in every single one of the 50 states. I've actually looked uh, up each state myself in the past. Um, There's also international organizations. You always want to vet the organizations that you're reaching out to and making sure they're actually doing the work. But there are fantastic groups out there that would be willing to help um, to get the right people involved. There's an anti-trafficking task force within the FBI that can be contacted within each of the 50 states also. If you're hesitant to reach out to the police, I totally get it. I've been there myself. That's when you reach out to these private organizations and ask for anonymity. Now, I have just two questions, two more questions for you. Um, 
I guess um, thinking back and just from a, a large kind of skyscraper perspective and just, you know, thinking about your own experience, but also um, the different people that you have uh, talked to in your time, what would you say was the worst part of human trafficking? It's in my book, I refer to it as the revolving door of sliced soul. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's deep. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every single time somebody came through the front door in Scotland, I, I was held in his home the whole time I was there. And every time some new stranger came through the front door, I felt like a slice of my soul was being taken away from me and they were taking a part of who I was. They were taking part of my identity. Um, it was, it was probably the most brutal thing that I've ever had to go through. And it was sometimes five, six, seven days a week. Mm. Wow. Oh, wow. That just, you know, I, 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 I feel that like, you know, once you have said like, uh, the way you've described it and just, you know, I started to, to visualize because, you know, as human beings, we are, there's so many layers to us. And, you know, I was picturing like, you know, it's almost like getting layers of you removed till you're almost nothing. Yep. That's what it <sighs> felt like. That is exactly what it felt like. Yes. Wow. Um. I guess uh, in in kind of closing, I like to always like um, uh, look at problems from a societal um, standpoint, um, and and reflect on how, as a society, that we need to uh, look in the mirror or start to improve the situation. And the hard thing about, of course, human trafficking, as that we discussed, is that it's not in the open. So you may not, you know, not know. And we, even the statistics that were given, we know that they aren't the, the true picture. Um, but as a society, since this is uh, so rampant as it ranks uh, the third uh, biggest problem after um, drugs and uh, weapons um, in the world, um, how is this then a, a reflection on our humanity as a collective from a global um, scale? We have a real problem. And this isn't just a problem of one person, person abusing another, but this is, this is a true pandemic. This is um, destroying lives. And even if the children or adults being taken into human trafficking aren't killed, even if they do survive, very few are lucky enough to have the uh, complete recovery that I've been able to have. And I can't say that I'm, you know, I, I, I misspoke slightly. I'm not completely recovered. I will suffer with PTSD and trauma reactions and trauma brain rewiring for the rest of my life because of what happened. But my life hasn't been completely destroyed. I have figured out since then how to have a functioning, happy, semi-normal life. That doesn't happen for most. I understand how blessed I am. Um, it's, it's an enormous achievement and I owe very little of any of that to myself. Uh, I owe that to the people around me. I owe that to my, my Christian faith. Um, I owe that to so much of everything and everyone except for me. I, I'm that pretty tough. I'll, I'll take credit where it's due, <laughs> but it, it, this this major issue 
if we don't start to address this in ways that are going to actually have an impact, we are never going to see a change. I imagine most people don't realize that the solicitation of a minor would would grant you the same fine as driving over the limit line at a red light. Very few mm-hmm. people are aware of that. So when people are asking where this book is of this list of names of clients for some former trafficker who's no longer around and in the business, it doesn't matter what those names are. It doesn't matter how long that list is. Until the laws change and until those people are punished for this, the law doesn't care about them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And that's a, you know, that's a true testament to how we are looking at just humanity and how we look at people. Um, you know, the, the fact that you brought up the, uh, that, you know, the same punishment you get for <laughs> a minor, I would say a minor offense is, uh, something of taking away a, a child. It's, it's, uh, it's ridiculous <laughs> to yep. say the least. Yep. Absolutely. Oh, well, um, thank you so much uh, for uh, sharing your story and giving us uh, the perspective and answering, I think, some uh, key important um, questions and issues and uh, addressing, I guess, um, thoughts that a lot of people have in society when they hear about this topic. Um, You've uh, opened my eyes, and I'm sure um, you're going to open a lot more once we, uh, a lot of people start listening to this one. Thank you. I, you know, I will gladly speak on this subject whenever I get the opportunity, because there's a lot of information out there that people don't understand. They're not, they're not given this information. They don't hear about how the laws are impacting the victims um, and how one of the biggest things that I run into is people are sending me these articles about these human trafficking rings being busted with 67 arrests. When it comes to those 67 arrests, I am betting 60 out of the 67 are victims of trafficking. They're the prostitutes that are being forced into doing this. And Mm. they're victimizing these victims who've already been victimized. And they're just constantly perpetuating this this circle of abuse. Yes. Um, Yes, I I found that out as... um... Uh, during my research that, yeah, people don't realize that uh, when they think that they're saving, they're actually just um, adding uh, more and more to the abuse. Yep. <sighs> yes. Um, well, uh, it's uh, definitely a lot for us to think about, chew on, and uh, start to realize that what we perceive um, as human trafficking is not always what it is. So yeah, exactly. Um, Yes. Uh, thank you, Miss Blackwood, for your time and insight. To learn more about Miss Blackwood and to order her books, go to detailedpieces.com. If you have a passion for an underserved community, a social justice problem, or want to change minds, contact Project Good Work at projectgood.work to start your project of change today. We'd like to send our deepest gratitude to our ongoing show supporter, Blair Chapman. Subscribe to our mailing list at projectgood.work slash subscribe to get our episodes and blog articles sent to you each month. Plus, get a 10% discount on any project you start on projectgood.work. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to Project Good, where we're focused on what matters. 